Man, I, I know you guys can't see this, but I'm, I'm standing right down there when we're worshiping. And I'm, I'm about to lose my mind just thinking about the holiness and the grandeur of our God and the beauty of the presence of God. And you couldn't see Tony next to me on his face on the ground just worshiping God. But there was a moment where it just felt sacred. Like we were in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and there was nothing better. I, I pray you felt it too. I think God wants to remind us of that very thing as we dig into the passage of Scripture this morning. We're going to be in Amos chapter 8. So go ahead and open your Bible right there to the book of Amos. If you've been tracking along with us all these weeks, we are getting toward the end of our journey through the book of Amos. We've got this week and one more week, and we're going to finish the whole book. We've been journeying through it all summer, and we're going to start in a moment at the beginning of Amos chapter 8. But before we jump in, I, I, I want to share with you something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So a week and a half ago, I was on our annual fasting retreat with seven other pastors of the church. It's our, our lead team and our campus pastors. And we were fasting and praying. And we were in Glen Erie Retreat Center uh, right next to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado City and fasting and praying. And for five days, we had a moment to completely unplug and disconnect. All we had for those five days was our Bibles, a journal, together time to pray, to meditate, to worship, and a whole lot of water, and it was amazing. It was so incredible just to say we're, we're stopping everything else. Like Nothing else matters here. We're unplugging entirely, and we're just plugging into the Lord. And, and I know when some of you hear that, a very small amount of you are going, man, that sounds amazing. And the vast majority of you are going, that sounds like hell on earth. <laughs> she would go five days without food and, and just unplug from everything. And, and, and there's a question that I actually hear pretty often when I talk about these fasting retreats that we do. There's a couple of them. First question is, how in the world do you go five days without any food? Like, won't you just die? And then the follow-up question is, why do you hate your staff so much that you make them do it with you? <laughs> and and, I, and I, get, I get asked those questions a lot. And I, and I want to say, first of all, I'm not a glutton for punishment. I don't go without food because I like how it feels. And I don't hate the staff. and I don't want them to suffer. In fact, when I tell you why I do it, I think you'll understand why I charge the staff and the church body to do the same thing. I, I don't like going days without food, but let me tell you what I do like. I like the experience I have when I get to fully engage in the thick, beautiful, amazing presence of Almighty God. And it doesn't matter how painful the days of fasting are. If God is at the end of that journey, and he always is, it is absolutely worth it. And when you go before a mighty God and you tell him literally, God, I want you more than food. I want you more than sustenance. I want you more than coffee. I want you more even than my family and my ministry and my job. I want you more than everything. Therefore, I'm pulling away. God always seems to show up because he knows when he's wanted. And every single time we do these fasting retreats, I have not had a single one where I've walked away from days of fasting, where I haven't experienced the incredibly rich presence of God and it made every single day of fasting worth it. In fact, I, I would love for some of you to experience what I'm talking about. This past spring, we opened up our, our fasting retreat to our staff up to the church body. And there were about 50 people from the church body who joined us at this fasting retreat. And it was phenomenal. But I believe the Lord wants us to train more people in how to fast and pray and seek the Lord. So this next spring, sometime in March, maybe early April, we're going to have another fasting retreat. And I'm inviting many of the, the, the Fielder family to come along and be a part of it. I'm praying for 100 people who would come to join us on this fasting retreat beyond the staff that'll be there. Because I know you will experience the incredible presence of God. I, I pray you'd actually consider being a part of it. But in, here's the reason why I think it would do you good. 
I believe there are so many of you watching this right now and you don't even know what I'm talking about when I talk about experiencing the thick, beautiful, rich presence of God. Because if you are honest, you have more experience with dry spells of not feeling the presence of God than you do experiencing the presence of God. You hear me talk about it, but you've never felt it for yourself. And I believe you are missing out on something beautiful. Because there's something that happens when you experience the presence of God, when he's there and he's real with you. It's like, it's like time stops and you come out of your body and there's a richness and a joy that nothing can compare to. We at this fasting retreat got to the end. In fact, I sent out the announcement video and I said in that video that it was our fifth day of the fasting retreat and we were about to go into a couple of hours of prayer specifically for you guys, for the church. What I didn't know when I created that video is that it wasn't gonna be a two hour time, it was gonna be a three hour time because we just couldn't stop. We just kept praying and praying for many of you by name, for the church body, for God to move and we couldn't stop. In fact, when the three hours was up, I felt the spirit tell me it was time to stop but I didn't want to and no one else did. When it came to taking the Lord's Supper at the end of that time of prayer, there was a sadness to it. I mean, hear, hear what I'm saying here. There was a sadness to eating food after five days of being without food because we just didn't want to stop the communion that we had with God because we knew being with God was better than anything else. That's what I mean when I say the thick, rich, beautiful presence of God is worth so much. And I long for many of you to experience it. But let me go ahead and forewarn you experiencing the rich, tangible presence of God is one of the things that once you have it, you cannot live without it. Experience the closeness, the presence of God. It's like a drug. It keeps you coming back for more and more and you are not satisfied by anything else other than the presence of God. And the moment you become addicted to the presence of Almighty God, it's gonna be a time when you get afraid of doing anything that might stop the presence of God from being with you. And let me go ahead and tell you, the scriptures tell us there are things that can repel the presence of God from us. If you understand how the scriptures teach, when we experience the presence of God, it is through the Holy Spirit who abides in us. In fact, we have a sermon series coming on this fall about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk more about this, about how the, the Spirit of God abides in us. But the scriptures say that we can resist the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. In other words, we can push the Spirit aside and remove the presence of God from our lives in a tangible way. And there is nothing that can harm us more when we've tasted the beauty of the presence of God than pushing God away and not experiencing the closeness of his presence. And, and I want to teach you this morning from the book of Amos, the danger points, the things that we do that push away the spirit of God so we can avoid them and the things we must do to receive the spirit of God so we can enjoy him. It's in Amos chapter eight. It's in the fourth vision that he gets as he's been going through this book. I want to read the first three verses for you. I want to see how he sets up the stage. Here's what it says, beginning in verse one. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. So what he's getting a vision of here is the end, the Assyrian invasion that would come upon when the temples would be destroyed and there would be dead bodies thrown everywhere and it would be a, a complete break. But he says, before he tells them that, here's the vision, I give you a picture of summer fruit. Now, you, you don't really understand what the summer fruit is in English because you gotta understand the Hebrew of it. So the word for summer fruit in Hebrew sounds almost identical to the word end in Hebrew. That's why he says, I saw a basket of summer fruit, and then it says, the end has come upon my people Israel. 
It's a play on words. He's saying you see the end in that summer fruit because the end is coming upon you. Destruction is coming. But he tells him what the end really looks like. The most remarkably painful thing of all the predictions that Amos has so far. He predicts that God himself will remove his presence. That's what he was getting at. The second part of verse two, he says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Now that phrase, pass by them in Hebrew, it's, it's one word. It's the Hebrew word yabar. And it's the word that's always used when it talked about how God would pass through their midst in the nation of Israel. When they were wandering around in the wilderness, he would pass through their midst. He would be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a recognition of the, of the presence of God that was tangible that they could experience because God would yabar, he would pass through them. And yet here he says, the end has come. You have messed up so deeply I will no longer walk through your midst. I am removing my presence from you. I will not pass through you again. In fact, he actually builds on this. If you were to flip over to verses 11 and 12 in the same chapter, he explains what this looks like. Skip over to verse 11. Read it with me. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. He says there's coming a time when you're going to be desperate, hungry for the word of God. Just God's presence, God to say something to you, God to be near. You're going to go all over the place looking for him, and you will not find him. Why? Because he's going to remove his presence from you. He's telling them that the greatest threat they have is that God himself will say, I'm no longer with you. And i got to be honest with you. There is nothing that scares me more than the thought that God would remove his presence. I, I think if you stop and think about what God's presence does for us, you will understand why that's such a huge threat. I talk to people all the time. In fact, this afternoon I was counseling with a couple that are getting ready to, to mourn the loss of, of an infant. And, and one of the things they were able to say over and over and over again was that though this is tragic and difficult, they know their God is with them. And they know one day they're going to see this child again and they can still rejoice because God is with them. And there are many of you who've suffered intense moments as believers in Jesus Christ. And the one thing you've said to me and to others is, man, if I didn't have God with me, I don't know how I'd make it. See, God's presence gives us hope. But could you imagine going through a loss and a tragedy, a sickness, a pain, and God is nowhere to be found. How desperate you would be. God, where are you? For him to remove his presence would leave us utterly hopeless. And it wouldn't just leave us utterly hopeless. It would leave us in total chaos. Evil would reign. God's presence is one of the things that bridles the evil of humanity. In fact, there are many people who talk about hell. And the one thing they talk about when they mention hell is the fact that it is so bad, not just because there's a flame that cannot be cast out, not just because there's torture and suffering, but because God is not there. And when God's presence is absent, the full evil of humanity reigns free. And that destruction is so severe, no one would want to be around it. The, the presence of God is all we got going for us. And the threat of him removing it, it's more than we can handle. Now, I know there's some of you watching this going, yeah, but, but God would never remove his presence from us, right? I mean, didn't God say he would never abandon us? He would always be with us? Absolutely. God is always going to be with the people who want to be with him. But let me tell you about our God. Our God says, that we can cast him aside. He won't turn his back on us, but we can turn our back on him and we can miss his presence. He knows when he's not wanted. The, the scriptures talk about multiple times 
like I mentioned earlier, where we can grieve the spirit, we can push the spirit aside, we can quench the spirit, we can say, I don't want you anymore. The, the people of God, Israel, did it time and time again where they showed with their actions, God, we don't want you. And, and God said, okay, then I won't be with you. In fact, there was a time in the book of Exodus where God spoke to Moses and he said, I'm removing my presence simply because I want to relieve my wrath because if, I, if I'm with you, I will take you down and I love you too much, so I'm going to remove myself. In fact, I want to read it for you. I want you to keep your place in Amos chapter 8 because we're going to come back to it. But I want you to flip over to Exodus chapter 33. And I'm going to set up the stage for you in this particular story. So Moses now has led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering around in the wilderness. And God says to Moses, I want you to meet me on the top of Mount Sinai. So he goes up on Mount Sinai and he's up there for weeks in entering into the cloud, the tangible presence of God. And when he's up there, up there praying and receiving communion with God, he's up there so long that the, that the nation of Israel back at base camp is going, oh my goodness, God killed him. He's gone. Moses isn't coming back. And so they turn to Moses' brother Aaron and they say, Aaron, make us a God because that, apparently that God ate up Moses and we, don't wanna, we need somebody else to worship. So Aaron foolishly says, give me all your gold. He takes her gold, he melts it down, he forms a golden calf and he says, here's your God, worship him. And they're down there dancing around, having this big old party of worship with this golden calf, serving an idol, the very thing they were forbidden to do. And God tells Moses, I'm gonna have to kill them all. Look at what they're doing. Then it says that Moses intercedes on their behalf and reminds God not to do it for his own glory and his own sake. And God says, okay. But then he says something exceptionally profound to Moses. He says, that's fine. I won't strike everybody down. And I'll even let you go to the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you. Because if I did, I'd kill you. Because I'm too holy and you're too unholy. Listen to what he says. Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. It says, the Lord said to Moses, depart Go up from here, you and the people who you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He says, listen, I'm going to give you what you want. I know you want the promised land, the land flowing to milk and honey. I'm even going to send my angel ahead of you so he can pave the way, conquer your enemies. I'm going to give you everything you ever dreamed of, but I'm not going with you. Because if I went with you, I would consume you because you are so unholy and I'm so holy. He is saying there are moments I have to remove my presence from you because I would consume you otherwise. So there is pattern in the scripture where God removes his presence from us when we turn our backs on him and no longer want his presence. But I want you to listen to how Moses responded to this because we can learn so much from Moses about what genuine faith looks like. I want you to listen in verses 15 through 17 how he responds. Verse 15 of Exodus 33, he says this. And he said to him, as, as meaning, and Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, if you're not going, God, I'm not going either. Because if we don't have your presence, God, we don't have anything. How are we different from anybody else? Isn't it you, God? Isn't it you with us? Isn't that all we have? 
And listen, I want to say the same thing is true for us. All we have going for us as the people of God is the presence of God. I, I'm here in this chair preaching to you. And let me go ahead and tell you, the only thing I have going for me is the presence of God. And if God were to depart from me, then I'm just a dude wasting my time talking to you. Because there's no power in my words. There's no power in my wisdom. If there's any power I have, it is the Spirit of God in me. And I think you know that. And those of you who've been impacted by the ministry of this church or by any sermon I've ever delivered, you know it was not me. It was the Spirit of God. It's the only thing I got going for me is the presence of God. And if he departs, I got nothing. Let me tell you about our church, Filter Church. One of the things that is so meaningful to me is when we gather together in worship. And if you have ever been to any of our, our public gatherings, then you know one of the things you will most hear is, man, I just felt the presence of God the moment I walked into the room. And there's a reason why. It's because on every single one of our campuses, the teaching pastors and the staff, we walk around the room and we pray and we invite the Spirit of God into the room. And the reason we do it is because we know the only thing we have going for us is the presence of God. Otherwise, we're just singing a bunch of songs to ourselves. We're just wasting our time with some long-witted preacher. Nothing's going to happen until God shows up. If we don't have the presence of God, we don't have anything. But with the presence of God, we have everything. So my question for you is, in your life, do you have the presence of God? I think there are many of you watching this and you have never experienced the tangible presence of God in your life. You've never experienced the richness of God. There's a reason why that is. In fact, I'm going to tell you why at the end of the sermon, why you've never experienced the presence of God. But I believe there are also many of you watching and you've had moments in your life in the past and maybe you were going through a crisis and you experienced God in unique ways. God did a miracle. God did something profound. Maybe it was a, a season where you were praying more and you were reading scripture more. But if you were honest right now, you're in an exceptionally dry season. Maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe you're watching this and you haven't started joining back together with the gathering of the church because you kind of got into a rut and routine and, and you watch it maybe faithfully, maybe not but it doesn't move you much. You're, just, you're supposed to do it because you're supposed to get some teaching from time to time. And maybe you even have a quiet time and you read, but God never speaks. You pray, but it feels like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing off. You just feel dry inside. Like it's been a long time since you've experienced the, the real, deep, satisfying presence of God. So if that's you, I want you to know there's a reason why. There's always a reason why we don't feel the presence of God. And it's not because God doesn't want to be known, doesn't want to be felt. There are things that we do that push aside the presence of God. In fact, from the text back in Amos chapter 8, we can learn three things from just three verses of mistakes that people make that push aside the presence of God. Some of the main reasons why we don't experience him in a tangible way. The reason why we're not satisfied in him being near us. And so I want to read verses 4 through 6 in Amos chapter 8. And I want you to learn some of the things they were doing wrong so we can avoid their mistakes. Read the verses with me, beginning in verse four. Amos says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So what you're reading right there in those three verses are some of the practices of the merchant class. 
the people who would buy and sell, and, and you see some of the wickedness in them. But in these patterns of wickedness, what you see are some things that they're doing that are driving God to abandon them, driving God to say, no longer shall I pass through you. Three things where you begin to see what they did to lose the presence of God, and I want you to hear them, and I want you to learn from them so you don't make the same mistake. First thing I want you to hear, a principle you learn from these three verses. We lose the presence of God when we make our faith a rule book to follow instead of a relationship to enjoy. I want you to write that down. I want you to chew on that for a moment. We lose the presence of God the moment we turn our faith into a, a rule book that we're supposed to follow as long as we obey all the rules instead of a relationship that, we're, we, that we get to enjoy. And it is so easy to do that, to turn our faith into a rule book instead of a relationship. This is exactly what they were doing. You might have missed it because some of the terminology, but in verse 5, it says that they're saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? Now, when it mentions new moon, that's talking about a, a monthly celebration festival they would have. Every time there was a new moon, they were supposed to stop all their work and they were supposed to gather together and rest and worship their God and dwell in his presence. And they were given a gift to be able to slow down and meditate on the goodness of their God. And they got to do it every single new moon. And then the Sabbath was another celebration every seven days. They were supposed to stop the rhythm of life, not do any more work, not strive anymore. And they, they could pull back and they could rest and they could go to the temple and worship and they could spend time with their family and, and meditate on scripture and just enjoy the presence of God. But do you see what they're saying here? They're saying, yeah, we're celebrating the new moon festival. Yeah, we're celebrating the Sabbath. But the whole time they're going, all right, When's the Sabbath going to be over? We need to get back to business. We need to sell some wheat. We need to sell some grain. When's the stinking new moon festival going to be over? Come on, let's hurry it up. And they, in that moment, were telling God what they really thought about him. Yeah, God, I'll obey all the rules so you'll bless me, but I don't really want to be with you. And can I just tell you, we do this to God all the time. We, we sit in worship services. Some of you right now are going, this preacher better not go long because I got lunch in the oven right now and I want to make sure I get a chance. Some, some of us, when you gather together in worship, the whole time you're like, are we really singing four songs and then a 45-minute message? Man, the Methodists are going to beat me to Luby's. We got to hurry up. Just finish this thing. I mean, come on, Lord. And we don't even realize that what we're telling God is, like, I did my business. I went to church. You got to bless me now, but I don't really want to be here. I want this to be over so I can check my box. Let me, let me just ask you a question. Those of you who are in a relationship, whether you're married or dating somebody, so let's say you got a date planned and I'm taking my wife out to dinner and let's just say we're sitting at Lazy Dog eating some food and my wife and I are enjoying some time together and then I go, dang it, man, can this date just hurry up? I got, I got a, a football game coming on here. Can, can we just, waiter, come on. I, I want this date over. Do you think my wife is gonna be pleased with me if I do that? No, she would see that as a slap in the face. She would be angry with me going, what, am I not good enough for you? And we do the same thing to God and we don't know why we don't experience his presence. Because we're saying, God, I got something else that's more important than you. Can we hurry this up? And what a slap in the face to God. But we do it in so many different ways, not just when we gather together with the church. We turn everything into a rule book and we make 
this whole obedience to God, just about following the letter of the law to make sure we do what we got to do to get blessed. But we have no heart. We're not really trying to enjoy God. We don't want to rest in his presence. We do it because we're supposed to do it because that's what good Christians do. Let me go back to my relationship with my wife. Imagine there was a moment when it was Valentine's Day. So my wife and I, we just celebrated recently 20 years of marriage. So this coming Valentine's Day, could, could you imagine if it was the, the morning of it and I, I walked up to her and I had 20 roses to symbolize our 20 years of marriage and in it I have a little card and in that card I write a note to her and I say, Virginia, I recognize that Valentine's Day is a federally recognized holiday and it is the expectation of husbands to buy roses for their wives on this nationally recognized holiday. So I have fulfilled my moral obligation. Here are your roses. Thank you very much. How do you think my wife is going to respond to that? Let me tell you how she's going to respond. Slap, pillow, blanket, there's the couch. She's not going to throw her arms around me and say, oh, I'm so grateful you obeyed all the rules and bought me my flowers. She's going to be ticked with me. Baby, if you're watching this, I'd never do that to you. I just want you to know that. I'm way too smart to do that. But we do this to God all the time. We think somehow if we obey all the rules and we say, it's my job to go to church, it's my job to read my Bible, it's my job to pray, and there's no heart, no passion, no desire for a relationship with God, why would we expect God to be near us? We lose the presence of God when we turn our faith into a rule book to follow instead of a relationship to enjoy. That's just the first thing that we learn from this passage. There's a second thing we do to lose the presence of God. We lose the presence of God when we prioritize our profession above our confession. We're going to lose the presence of God every time we make a priority of our profession, of our job, of what we spend all of our time doing, instead of our confession of faith in God. And it's so easy to do to prioritize because we like to make this divide between sacred and secular. We, we have this confession of faith. This is the sacred area. And when we go to church, that's God's space. Maybe we pray before dinner, that's some God space. Maybe we have a little quiet time, 10, 15 minutes in the morning, that's God space, that's sacred, and everything else is secular. And it belongs to us, and God doesn't really enter into that space. And that's where we do our work, whether our profession is we're a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or a school teacher or an electrician or an IT consultant or a minister or whatever. Like, that's my job. I do that thing. God, you're over here. This is exactly the dichotomy that these people were putting into effect. So here were some Jewish people and they come and they do business as the people of God. And it says in verse five, they, they ask, when's the new moon gonna be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So what this is talking about right here is some really terrible practices of doing business. And like I mentioned earlier, these were merchants and they made their profit by buying grain from farmers and selling it in the marketplace. And what they would do is they would trick the people who were buying and selling. The ephah was a, a measurement tool. It was, it was equivalent of about 22 liters and you would measure out wheat that way. And what they would do is they would make the ephah small. They would, they would build an ephah that was only maybe 18 to 20 liters instead of 22. Now, you couldn't notice that it was too small with the naked eye, but it was a way for them just to get a little bit of margin of profit. So when they sell, they're only selling 20 liters, but they're saying it's 22 liters. They're making 10% profit on that bad boy, and no one knows it. They're cheating the system. And when it says they're making their shekel great, 
Back then, you didn't, you didn't give out dollar bills. You didn't hand them a credit card. You weighed out shekels in order to purchase something. And what they would do is they would put their shekels and they would insert extra weights on their shekel. Maybe put some rocks in there or something so that it looked like it was more. Maybe it was, it was only seven shekels, but it weighed out like 10 shekels because they're making their shekel great so they can, they can have more buying power with their money. They're cheating the system. So it talks about false balances. And then in verse six, it talks about they would sell the chaff of the wheat. What that meant is they, they would have these bags of grain that they would sell and they would sell it as pure wheat but instead of it being pure wheat, they would put the chaff, the shell around the wheat, and they would stuff it full in there as a way to make it look like it was full. And they would sell it at full price. And then they would leave and go to a different market. And so when the person opened their bag and saw all the chaff and saw they'd been cheated, they'd go back to the market. But that dude was nowhere to be found because they just cheated somebody else. It's just shoddy business practices. But let me tell you what's so interesting. These people are bragging about these false things. They're saying to one another, yeah, we need to make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false, false balances while they are the very people of God. This is the nation of Israel. These are the Jewish people and they are deceitfully acting and preying upon their own brothers and sisters among the, the Jewish people. They're doing the very thing God told them explicitly not to do. In fact, I wanna flip over. You don't have to follow over here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Verses 13 through 16. I want you to see just how clearly God told them not to do this. Verse 13, Deuteronomy 25 says, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. And he says, For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Moses couldn't put it any more explicitly. Don't use false weights. Don't use false measures or you will be an abomination. And here are the Jewish people and they're using false weights and false measures and they couldn't care less. You want to know why? Because this business, they're just Jewish people doing their business and they had dichotomized their life. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to sing my worship songs. I'm going to observe the new moon and the Sabbath. But this is business. And the moment God's ways got in, in the way of their business, they threw God's ways right out the door because their profession had become more important than their confession. And I want you to know the exact same thing can happen to you and me when we dichotomize our lives into sacred and secular. And there's so many of you who are watching this and you have not served God in your workplace in the rest of your life, like you do in church, you speak one game at church, live a totally different way outside of church, and you think it's not a problem because you do the churchy thing when you're around other Christians. Listen, God is in control of church, of your home, of your job, of your kids' sports, of all your hobbies. He's in charge of it all. There is no dichotomy. Everything is sacred. And he wants your job to be the place you worship him by representing him in honesty and integrity and goodness. Your confession should trump your profession, not your profession, your confession. And when we get it backwards and we try to put God in a box, we wonder why God doesn't show up. We lose the presence of God when we let our profession be more important than our confession. But there's a third way that we lose the presence of God. We lose the presence of God when we forget to fear the power of God. We'll automatically lose the presence of God when we no longer fear the power of our great God. That's exactly what happened to them. Listen to some of their actions. Going back to verse four, he says, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. And then in verse six, 
they say that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Saying these Jewish merchants were mistreating the poor and the needy. Now let me tell you why that's an affront to God. God had explicitly said in his law that you shall not mistreat the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. In fact, again, I want to read another passage of scripture to show you just how clear it was. If you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 22, and I'll read just verses 23 and 24, and he's talking about how if you mistreat the poor and the needy and the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, he says, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God is saying, if you buck up against me, I will buck up against you and you will not survive. Do not mistreat the vulnerable and the poor and the needy. He says it as clear as day. And yet here they are and they're oppressing and mistreating the poor and the needy and they're not the least bit concerned about God. They've come to a place where they no longer fear the wrath of their God. And God knew there was only one way to get their attention, to show them who he really was and why he was a God to be feared because he was a God of power. And that's why for the rest of this chapter, all he does is display the magnitude of his power. In fact, I want to finish up the chapter, verses 7 through 14. Let me read the rest for you. Here's what it says. Back in Amos chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. And those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So he says, because you have not feared your God, let me tell you who your God is and what he's going to do. And he starts talking about this judgment that's coming. In verse 8, he talks about an earthquake. He says, the land will tremble. And this actually begins to happen. If you were to go back to Amos chapter 1, verse 1, he says this prophecy happened two years before the earthquake. So apparently, just a couple of years later, the prophecy is already starting to be conformed, confirmed that the land began to tremble because of this earthquake. Verse 9, it talks about an eclipse of the sun. He says he'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth. And there are many scholars who believe, though they can't confirm it, they believe that there was a massive eclipse, a solar eclipse that happened not too long after that time that Amos would have preached this message. Again, another confirmation that this prophecy was being fulfilled. And then in verse 10, he talks about their feast turning into mourning and their songs and lamentation. They're going to have sackcloth and baldness. And this is exactly what happened when the nation of Assyria came in 722 and decimated the nation of Israel. And they were exiled with sackcloth and bald heads as a sign of mourning and brokenness. Again, the prophecy being fulfilled. But the gravest of all is what I already spoke about, verses 11 and 12. When it says there's going to be famine, but not of bread, and the thirst, but not of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You're going to go everywhere looking for it, but you're not going to hear a single word from the Lord. And exactly as Amos predicted, it happened. In the year 430 BC, there was the last of the prophets. His name was Malachi. 
and he gave his prophetic word. And when he finished, the Old Testament closed and there wasn't a single word to come for over 400 years. They were longing for God to speak to them, longing for God to show up. People being mistreated, the Jewish people crying out, God, where are you? God, where are you? And there was nothing, not a word, not an utter, not a single prophet who could speak on behalf of God. For 400 years, older than this nation of ours, not a single word until there was a light that dawned in the nation of Israel. Isaiah had predicted it that it would be a light that would dawn in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in a region by the sea called Galilee. And Matthew chapter 4 tells us who that light was. That light had a name, and his name was Jesus. And after over 430 years of silence, finally on the scene, the real prophet comes, and God speaks for the first time after 400 years of silence. But this prophet wasn't like the other prophets. He didn't just bring doom and gloom. This prophet named Jesus came with a new message and says, I bring a message of hope. The thing that you long for, the thing that can satisfy you, the presence of God has come and it's me. I am God with you, Emmanuel. I am the one who can satisfy you. I am the bread of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. You can come to the Father through me. And what your heart longs for is found in me. And he said, come follow me and you'll experience living water and you'll never thirst again. This is the offer he makes for us today. He says, there are so many of you and you're looking everywhere to be satisfied. And you're, you're turning to relationships and they can't satisfy you. You're turning to sex and it can't satisfy you. You're turning to that drink at the end of the day, that substance to take away the pain and it cannot satisfy you. You're trying to achieve. You're trying to make the team. You're trying to get into the school. You're trying to land the job. You're trying to be successful. All these things that you think will satisfy you and they can't and you know they can't. Because every time you turn to them, they make you feel good for a moment. And then you need something else because it didn't satisfy. It's like a flash of bolt, a, a bolt of lightning in the night sky. You can see just for a moment, but when the flash is gone, it's even darker than before. And I believe there's so many of you and you're exhausted seeking for what can satisfy you. You're never going to find it because nothing can satisfy you but the living water who is Jesus. And he offers you what can satisfy your soul. It's God. But let me remind you, only holy person can be with holy God. The bad news is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken our relationship. He hadn't abandoned us. We've abandoned him. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ knew that we couldn't save ourselves. So he came to this earth. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He rose from the dead three days later so that he could show us his power to reconcile us to God. And he invites us in. And I believe there are some of you watching this. And he's coming to you right now and he's saying, come to me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you tired? Come to me because I want to show you life. I want to show you what can satisfy your soul because it's me. And if you'll just finally say to him, okay, I give up. I'm ready for you. I'm tired of looking everywhere else. I'm ready for you, God. Then you can have what your soul was created for. Almighty God and his thick presence in you. 
So if you're ready to take that step of faith, we have pastors right now who want to partner with you. We just need to know. So I'm going to ask you to do something. And I know it may feel kind of cold and formal, but I, I, this is the only way we can contact you right now. I want you to get your phone out. I want you to text the word next step to 94253. Just like you see it right there on your screen. Or you can go to filler.org slash next step. And there's a form and you fill it out. And the only reason I would ask you to do that is because a live human being, one of the pastors on our staff, wants to call you, wants to reach out to you, wants to connect with you. Because we want you to experience life. And that life is in Jesus Christ. And it's an abundant life. But we need to know what God's doing in your heart and your life. So please take a moment. Go to next step. Go to filler.org slash next step. Let us know so we can reach out to you and pray with you because God is ready to meet you. But listen, I also want to say there are hundreds of you watching right now and you're believers in Jesus Christ and you are in a dry season where you're not feeling the presence of God and you don't know why. Let me say what I've been saying all along. There's a decent chance, not that God has turned his back on you, but that maybe you've turned your back on God. Maybe... You've let it become a ritual, a religion, a rule book. And you've forgotten to love God. And he wants your heart. In this fasting retreat, we were reading the Gospels. And as we were reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John in such a short period, one of the things that we saw so clearly was that Jesus was always about the heart. Outer actions didn't please him. The heart is what pleased him. And maybe you've forgotten to love him with your heart. Maybe you need to repent and return to him. Maybe... Maybe you've let all the other areas of life become primary and you've let your faith be secondary. You need to flip that over. And you say, God, I invite you into my work. I invite you into my home. I invite you into every arena of my life. You're primary now. Maybe you need to come back and say, God, I haven't feared you the way I was supposed to fear you. I've treated you lightly and I repent. But when you're hungry for the presence of God and you tell him with a humble heart, he'll return to you. And the reason we can know he'll return it's because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In this next song, we're going to be reminded of why we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. But whatever you need to do to come back, to invite him back into your heart, to abide in him and him in you, you do it. You pray. You respond. And when this time is over, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper.